0: You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Good morning. Um, this morning we were, we were due to have um, Harold Aflu with us, who um, is the pastor at Ipswich International Church. Um, but he had to uh, make a fairly last-minute trip back to Ghana, where, he, where he's from. Uh, so you've got me this morning. Whee! I'm less African, but... Um, as equally excited about Jesus as Harold is. And we're going to be inviting uh, Harold next year to come and be amongst us. So, okay, if you have a Bible with you, why don't you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. And that's where we're going to be uh, reading from in just a moment. Um, Just to recap, really, on the previous uh, weeks, uh, Israel had asked God for a king. God gave them a king in Saul. And uh, Samuel, last week, we saw his farewell speech to the nation. He was no longer going to be there Judge, but he was going to remain as the high priest um, at least for some time. And uh, in chapter thirteen, we're not going to be in much of chapter thirteen today. We'll be in. We'll look at a little bit more next week as well. Um, But essentially, uh, it's a pretty dire situation. The Philistines are still at war with the Israelites, and uh, Israel are in a bit of trouble. Already, uh, Saul has made a big mistake in making a sacrifice without waiting for Samuel. Samuel uh, lambasted him for that and prophesied that he would not be the king for much longer, that God had actually uh, set his mind on another king who really was after God's heart. And we're going to be seeing uh, more about that king, uh, King David, in the coming weeks. We're actually going to be focusing on him after Christmas, really one of the most important characters, not only in this book, but also in the whole Bible. And uh, so Saul was now aware that his reign wasn't going to last forever. And uh, the Philistines were closing in on the Israelites. And as we're going to see now, uh, the Israelites were pretty um, underprepared for for a war. I'm just going to read verse 19 um, through to chapter 14. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, let the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass at Michmash. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Okay, so as I said, it's a dire situation. We've got here the Israelites who are hiding away in caves and don't have any swords and then the Philistines who are closing in on their position with swords. It's a pretty uh, dire situation. Saul is frozen with fear, it seems. He's staying in the cave. He's not doing anything about it. Maybe the words of Samuel are still ringing in his ears that he will no longer, uh, he won't always be the king, that he will be dethroned. Maybe he's fearful about what might happen to him. And so he stays where he is. And by contrast, we see Jonathan, his son, is a man of action. And throughout this uh, story so far, we've seen that the sons of these leaders weren't very, very good. So Samuel, his sons, uh, were rebellious. Eli's sons were rebellious. But Saul's son, Jonathan, is a man of action. He's not going to lie down and just take a beating here. He's not going to lie down and let the nation of Israel be overrun by the Philistines. He's passionate about God's glory. And so he is not going to lie down and take a beating. Let's read on uh, to see what happens. Verse 4. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes and the name of the other Sene. The one crag rose in the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, Then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have been hiding. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come on up to us, and we will show you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So, Jonathan and his armor bearer. Only Jonathan has a sword. His armor bearer has not got a sword. They are going to take on 20 Philistine soldiers. We read in just a few verses time, there's 20 of them. 20 Philistine soldiers. And they have to climb up these cliffs that we're going to uh, see on the screen here. And these names are important because uh, the names of these cliffs literally mean slippery and thorny. So they're not particularly... Uh, enticing prospects to climb up these cliffs. And they probably would have been under fire as well. They would have been pelted with rocks and objects from the Philistines, no doubt. And they have to climb up using both hands and their feet in order to get up. So they can't hold a shield up to themselves. It's a pretty uh, dangerous mission that they're going on. Two versus 20, one of them's got a sword. And what's more is that the Philistines are pretty confident in themselves. They're mocking them. Here they come, coming out of their caves. They're like animals coming out of hiding. And they say, Come on up, we'd like to show you something. Now, uh, the, my Bible translation is probably not very good in this. They're not saying, hey, we've got something really interesting to show you. you know, we've got a great stamp collection up here, you have to see. Or we wanna, you need to see our model railway, it's amazing. No, they're saying, come on up here and we will end you. You will die. We will destroy you is what they're saying. They are so confident that these guys coming out of their caves are just going to be weak and they're just going to be killed within seconds. So they make the climb up to the top of the cliff. And let's just uh, let's see what happens then. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that, sh- that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So these guys, they get up to the top, and they kill all of the Philistine soldiers. They kill all 20 of them, seemingly fighting back to back. Jonathan was injuring them. The armor-bearer was killing them. I don't know what he was using he must have had some kind of instrument, some sort of agricultural uh, weapon or something. Uh, but they, they kill all 20 of the soldiers. And understandably, it causes a panic amongst the Philistines. I mean, if you saw that going on, if you were the Philistine army, seeing two guys who'd been in hiding coming out and just killing 20 men uh, like that, you'd be pretty scared, I think. You'd think, these guys are up for a fight. you think, what has possessed these guys? And so a panic ensues, and then God adds to the panic. He sends uh, some kind of uh, earthquake. There's a tremor in the ground, and the the armies start to to, to panic and start to run. And Saul has lookouts watching what's going on. We read on in the verses. And these lookouts see the armies of the Philistines. It says that they look like they were melting away. They were legging it. They were getting out of there as quickly as they could. And so Saul and his men are encouraged by this. They rise up and pursue the Philistines. And even those that have defected over to the Philistines, they come back and join the Israelites and they drive the Philistines uh, many, many miles away. The kingdom of Israel is safe for another day. There'll be many, many more battles with the Philistines that we'll see in the, uh, in the coming weeks. Um, but they've driven the, the Philistines back. They have advanced and the Philistines have been driven back. Uh, this is an amazing story, right? this is incredible, and you might be thinking, what on earth are we learning about this for? How is this relevant? Why are we sitting here reading about a battle that took place thousands of years ago? I believe it's really relevant for us because we are in a battle. We are in a battle. We are caught up in a battle that is going on right across the globe. We are are caught up in a spiritual battle whereby there are forces of uh, darkness at play and forces of good, and that might sound really wacky to some of you, but I believe that's what the Bible teaches. That when, uh, when evil came into this world, when Adam and Eve decided that they would uh, not go God's ways, they were tempted by this serpent, the devil in the form of a serpent, tempted to disobey God and to go their own way, that evil came into the world. <clears throat> and everything that we see around us, which is I mean, there's, there's evil things going on in the world. Whether you believe in God or not, you, you could say there's some things that are categorically wrong that are going on in our world today. Things, these, the evil entered when Adam and Eve were tempted. And uh, God finds out about it and understandably is unhappy. And what he says to Adam and Eve, he doesn't say, right, you need to sort this mess out. He says to the serpent, there is going to come a day when this woman's offspring will crush your head. There's going to come a day when you will be crushed. But there's also a word there that this serpent will bruise the heel of that man. That it means there's going to be a battle. There would be a battle in which this serpent would be crushed. This serpent would be defeated. And thousands of years later, Jesus came to fulfill that prophecy. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the reason that the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the evil one. You might think about Christmas. You might think uh, Christmas is about family, it's about friends, it's about being cozy, it's about presents, whatever. John, the Apostle John, would say it's about destruction. He wouldn't have been great fun at the Christmas dinner table, would he? But he would say that the reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the evil one. And ultimately that was uh, what Jesus went about doing. Wasn't it? He went about uh, healing people, setting people free from spirits that were oppressing them. He went around forgiving people of their sin. And then he, on the cross, the Bible says that he dealt a deadly blow to the devil because he took upon him the sin and the shame of the world that separated people from God. And the devil thought that he had won. The devil thought that he had won. When Jesus died on the cross, breathed his last, he thought he'd won. But a couple of days later, Jesus rose again. And in rising again, it was a sign that that was no accident, that 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 death on the cross was no accident. It was part of God's plan. And as he rose again, Jesus defeated the power of death. He He defeated the power of death. That means we can know eternal life. We can know life beyond the grave. So Jesus has defeated the devil. He's defeated him. And then as we go forward right to the end of the Bible in Revelation which is a, must, a much misunderstood book, and many people can have wacky ideas about it and can start trying to predict when Jesus is going to come back, when Jesus doesn't even know when he's going to come back. So and it's good luck trying to be cleverer than Jesus. And uh, the, the, they come up with all kinds of wacky ideas. But the, the big thing about Revelation you need to know is that Jesus is going to come back. And that when he comes back, he is going to destroy death. He's going to destroy the devil. The devil is already defeated, but he has yet to be destroyed. He's like a boxer who has been dealt the knockout blow. He's going down to the canvas. He's not going to get back up again, but as he goes down to the canvas, he's swinging. He's trying to take people down with him. So that's the, that's the reality of what is going on in the world. It's that the, the, the future of the devil and of death and of suffering and sickness is secure. It will be no more. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sadness. That is secure. This is not some battle that, you know, we're sort of watching on with popcorn wondering who's going to win. You know, it's, it's a done deal. God is victorious. He's not a couple of wrong moves away from starting to worry. So the Bible says we're in a battle. We're in a battle. And our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual forces of evil. We find ourselves in a battle. And we, friends, the good news is Just as with the armor bearer who gets to go with Jonathan on this mission. We get to go with Jesus. We don't just sit and watch Jesus do all of the work. We get to play our part in seeing his kingdom advance all over the world. And where his kingdom advances, people are set free, people are healed, people are uh, released from all kinds of things. We get to play a part in that. We all get to play a part. If you're a Christian here this morning, it's God's desire that you play a part in seeing his kingdom advance. It will advance. It's a, it's a done deal. Isaiah chapter 9, which I guess we'll probably read out at Christmas time, says this, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And this is the most key part of that passage. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God, when he's zealous about something, he does it, okay? You might be zealous about a cause. You might be zealous about recycling, Your zeal for recycling doesn't even begin to compare to God's zeal for his own glory. You might be zealous about a football team. You might cry when they lose. God is zealous about his glory. And so when it says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, it means he's going to accomplish it. Of the increase of the government of Jesus Christ, there will be no end. His kingdom will go on advancing throughout the world. Many, many millions of people person by person, come into his kingdom, come under his reign. So that's the reality of the battle that we face. However, it still nonetheless is a battle for us. It's still a battle for us. And we, as I said, get to play a part in advancing the kingdom of God. So four uh, things that are the backdrop to advance is what we're going to look at this morning. Firstly, advance emerges from dissatisfaction with the status quo. That's not the 80s rock band. That's the, the, the situation in which we find ourselves. Okay? We um, advance, emerges from uh, a dissatisfaction with the way things are. I believe God wants us to be stirred about the way things are in our nation and in our continent, even in the world. He wants us to be stirred by these things. He wants us to, uh, he wants to, us to get angry about some things. Sometimes we can watch the news and I think, I'm going to turn this off because I'm so fatigued from hearing bad news. They don't really share good news much, do they? They don't share the good news story so much. So we hear bad news after bad news. So we might think sometimes, I want to just block that out and not, uh, not go there because I just I want to be happy today. I don't want to know what's going on in the world. I get that. But at the same time, God doesn't want us to be ignorant as to the pain and suffering that is going on in the world. And he wants us to be stirred by it and stirred to anger, not with uh, not not towards people, okay. The Apostle Paul says, What business of it what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Okay? He says actually it's surely it's for us to, only to judge within the church and to help people come away from wrong patterns of thinking and behaviour. But When it comes to those outside of the church, what business is it of ours to judge those outside of the church? Our our battle is not against people. God wants us to have compassion for the world, where we see people's plight and have compassion, not disdain or disapproval, as if we somehow worked it out ourselves, as if we somehow found Jesus because we're so clever. No, he found us, and that should humble us. And so when we look to uh, what's going on in the world, yes, we should be angry, but we should be angry at, at sin and, and, and the devil and not uh, disapproving and tutting and thinking, well, thankfully I'm much better than that person. I'm much better than them. Actually, God wants us to be stirred by the situation in the world. He wants us to be stirred to action. Jonathan could have, he could have stayed in the cave. He could have stayed in the cave with Saul and just put his hands over his ears and pretended there wasn't a big army encroaching upon him. He could have pretended that all was okay. But actually, God would want us to be aware of what's going on in our society, in our communities, and to be stirred by it, to be stirred by it, to see people reached for Jesus. We are, I'm prayerful, friends, that as a church, we will never think we've, we've made it, we've done it, we've arrived. I'm prayerful that we'll never think, okay, job done. Because in, as long as there is one lost person in our area of influence then job is not done. Do you understand? We we don't exist for us. This church doesn't exist for us to have a cozy club. This church exists for God's glory and for the good of the world. Is that right? This church exists for those that don't yet know Jesus. That's why we're here. And so, yes, God wants to grow us in community, but it's so that we might shine in this town and in these villages around that we would see others worn over to him. We don't, get complacent. We don't think all is well and we've arrived because we're seeing some measure of of advance. We call out to God for more. Secondly, advance comes when we reckon on God's favor. I read um, a study this week at the beginning of this year that was carried out which said that one in three Britons believed that 2017 was going to be worse than 2016. And then in that same study, they studied 25 developed nations and they found that the Brits were the third most pessimistic of those nations, only bettered by the Italians in second and the French in first. And, uh, and maybe the French have got good reason to be pessimistic, I don't know. Um, that was a big dig. Sorry, Jeremy, who's French. Um, we can be a bit of a cynical and pessimistic nation, can't we? We can, we can kind of think, if I go for that course of action, there are a number of things that could go wrong. You might not be from this nation, and you might be sort of thinking, yeah, this is true of Brits. I've noticed that they don't really have much trust in, in, in the future. They believe it's all going to go badly. And I've noticed, actually, that amongst uh, international folks in this church that I've got to know, there's, a, um, there's an entrepreneurial spirit that is, I'm going to go and do this business venture or whatever, because I believe it's going to be successful. There's not so much to be found amongst us as Brits. We, we kind of tend to play it safe. And uh, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, when we come to taking a course of action, we have to list the the very many things that could go wrong in order to be able to do that thing with a health and safety uh, risk assessment. And uh, Ricky Gervais, who you didn't expect me to be quoting from this morning, I imagine, he uh, commented in Time magazine on the differences between Americans and British. He says this, The Americans applaud ambition and openly reward success. Brits are more comfortable with life's losers. We embrace the underdog until it's no longer the underdog. Is that a bit true of tennis? We liked it when Tim Henman failed at the last hurdle, but we don't like it when Andy Murray does well. We like the underdog. Americans say, have a nice day, whether they mean it or not. Brits are terrified to say this. We tell ourselves it's because we don't want to sound insincere, but I think it's because we don't want to celebrate anything too soon. For the Brit, failure and disappointment lurk around every corner. This is due to our upbringing. Americans are brought up to believe they can be the next president of the United States. Brits are told, it will never happen for you. I think that's quite insightful. I don't, wouldn't say it's true of every British person, but I think it's quite insightful. One last point. A, a poll I read a couple of weeks ago after England had um, qualified for next year's World Cup thousands of participants said 42% believe that England will be knocked out in the group stages of the World Cup. Now, maybe there's good reason given recent form, but that's not a very optimistic outlook, is it? That's a quite a cynical and pessimistic outlook. Now, I think there's something in, a little bit in our national mindset that says things will, will go wrong eventually. That if we, if we step out to do that thing, we need to think about the many, many things that could go wrong. And I'm not I'm not suggesting we, we throw our minds out and think, well, you know, let's just go and do some crazy things and not consider all the possible consequences. But, you know, William, William Carey, who was a great missionary uh, a couple of centuries ago, he said, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. That runs against that mindset, doesn't it? Of it's only going to go wrong. We're, we're going to fail to actually, no, we're, we're going to expect great things from God. We're going to step out, In confidence that God will be with us. And this this morning, I really want us to to come to see that mindset that Jonathan had, which was, God is with me. Um, The Bible says, Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So that means all change comes about by a change of thinking. And the mindset of many, many people in our society is one of pessimism and of cynicism. We mustn't be pushed into that mold. Instead, actually be transformed by the truths in the Bible that actually will lead us to trusting in God for some big things. Jonathan trusted in God that he was living in God's favor. Verse 6, come on, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised. Now, you need to understand that the circumcision thing here isn't, isn't that important a detail. He didn't believe that the Philistines, because they weren't circumcised, were going to be not as good soldiers. Okay. He didn't believe that somehow he was going to be quicker because they were circumcised. He wasn't. That's not relevant here. Okay. He's, he's simply making a distinction between them as not the people of God and him as part of the people of God. He is, he is seeing that he is part of God's people and therefore God's favour rests upon him because he's part of God's people. So he's making a distinction here that God, God is going to be with me because I'm part of his people. And friends, that is the mindset that we need to have when we step out to take risks for God. When we step out to do things for God, we are in God's favor. We are those that God has lavished his favor upon. That's what grace means. It means that he's lavished upon us favor, that things that we don't deserve. In fact, we're ill-deserving of. His favor is upon us. Jonathan, uh, there was nothing special about his fighting ability. It was simply that he was of the chosen nation. He knew God was going to be with him. He didn't accept that this nation was going to be defeated. He didn't accept what could have been, for some of his fellow soldiers, an inevitable reality. We are going to be defeated. We're going to be overrun by these Philistines. And do we accept this morning that this nation is always going to be in decline when it comes to Christianity. Do we accept that? Do we accept that Europe is always going to be a spiritual wasteland? I don't accept accept that. I don't accept that God is done with this country. I don't accept that there's always going to be dwindling church numbers. I don't accept that there's always going to be uh, people who will who will you know, say, the church is dead in this country. I don't accept that. I, I believe that God's favor is upon his church. He loves the church. And so we can be bold and confident in the favor of God. We really can be. And we don't have to say, well, it's only really going on in China, or it's only really going on in Africa, or it's only really going on in South America. That's where God's kingdom is advancing. But here we're just going to have to put up with some some decline. You know, God's plan is that as the world gets darker, the church shines brighter. And I, I really believe that there's, there's big things even still for this country that if we were to call out to God and, and pray and ask him and take risks and step out and be the church that he wants us to be, then God will do great things. We need to have the mindset that is in the scriptures. You know, Nick read out Romans 8 earlier. I was chuckling as Nick was reading it because that's exactly uh, where God had led me for this message. You know We need to be in the truths of Roman, Romans 8. Romans 8 is probably one of the key chapters in the Bible. Okay, If you want to know where to start, uh, maybe you want to go to Romans 8 because that is a chapter that is packed full of the truth. It's packed full of uh, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's packed full of all that is our inheritance in Jesus, that we're adopted into his family, that he's given us the Holy Spirit, that we have a future glory awaiting us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. These truths are truths that will change our mindset from one of, it's always going to be difficult, and whatever we step out in, we're going to fail, to actually know we're living in the favor of God. I really want to call us into that. We, we, we must see that God, we are God's favored people. We're his treasured possession, and he's got good things for us. Paul asks the question, doesn't he, what will separate us from the love of God? And he, he goes, on. I'll just list it, actually. What, what's he, what does he list in that that we, read, we heard earlier? He says, will famine, will nakedness, will persecution, will powers, will demons, will angels, will any of these separate us from the love of God? His resounding response is no. None of these things will separate us from the love of God. None of these things can separate us from God's love. And that is something that will change our Minds when it comes to the future. When we look forward, we believe God is with us. He is with us. I believe that. It won't always be easy. There will be battles ahead for us where it will feel fierce at times. It it wasn't an easy battle for Jonathan and his armor bearer. Even though they defeated these 20 Philistines, it wasn't easy. But the outlook is good because we're God's favored people. Number three, advance is fueled by outrageous risk-taking. When we base ourselves in the mindset of Paul in Romans 8, when we realize God is with us, and we say, you know, if, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Paul isn't at that point asking us to list some things down. Okay, take your pens out, write down the many things that could be against us. He's saying if God is for us, it is completely irrelevant who is against us. God doesn't consider anyone an equal match to him. He doesn't consider anyone a, 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 a tough opposition. If, if God is for us, then it is irrelevant who stands against us. Because God's for us. This mighty one, the mighty one of Israel that we've uh, sung about even this morning, that he is with us. So this leads us to take risks. It leads us to be on the offensive. It doesn't uh, keep us in our caves, when we know God's with us, we don't stay in our caves. We don't uh, try and hide our light under a bushel, as Jesus would say. We don't try and uh, you know, just retreat and say, no, I'm just going to stay where we are, actually, and we're quite happy with how things are going. No, when we see that God is with us, and, that he, and if no one can stand against him, it leads us to be on the offensive. It leads us to take ground for him. It leads us to push back the kingdom of darkness and to see the kingdom of God advance. It leads us to take risks. Risk is simply uh, an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. So if you take a risk, you might lose money, you might lose face, you might lose health, you might even lose your life. That is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about risk this morning. It's an action that exposes you to that possibility. It's impossible, though, for God to take a risk. It's absolutely impossible for God to take a risk because he knows the outcome he knows the outcome before any course of action. He knows what's going to happen. So it's not possible for God to take a risk. But we all, because we're finite beings, we don't see the future. We take risks every day, don't we? We take risks every day. Whether, we, whether we're really thinking about it or not, we, we do things because, and without knowing the consequence of our action. We must dispel this myth that we don't take risks, because we do. And we see a big risk here with with Jonathan. He's got no personal promise from God that um, that he's going to be victorious in this battle. He says to his armor bearer, perhaps God will come through for us. Perhaps he will do this. It's it's a risk. He steps out. He doesn't know what's going to happen. It's a risk. Same risk that Queen Esther took when she approaches the king to try and plead for her people. The Israelites were, were looking to be... They would look like they were going to be destroyed. And Queen Esther, who was a Jew, she approaches the king. And as it was in those times, if you said a word that the king didn't like, then it was death. It was certain death. And she said, if I perish, I perish. And you've got Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They are facing pressure from uh, King Nebuchadnezzar to bow down to this idol that he would created. You must bow down to it, otherwise you're going to get thrown in a fiery furnace. You're going to die. And they said, we believe that God will rescue us from this. But even if he doesn't, this is the risk element here, even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to that idol. The Apostle Paul, the great risk taker of the New Testament, Agabus comes to him in Acts chapter 21. He says, I know you're on the way to Jerusalem, Paul, but I saw an image in my mind of you're going to be bound and you're going to be beaten. It's not going to end well for you, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, I am prepared to die for the sake of Jesus. took a risk. He took a risk not knowing what would, uh, he would face. He took a risk to, to further the cause of Christ, to bring glory to Jesus. We, 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 friends, when we are based in the truths of the Bible, when we are, are, are allowing our minds to be changed by the truth then we will take risks. We will take risks, not always knowing the outcome, not always knowing what what might happen to us. We might face uh, loss of uh, health or loss of money or loss even of uh, reputation. But God is calling us to take risks for his glory. He calls us to take risks, to take steps of faith. And the foundation to taking risk is the truth in the Bible. John Piper says this, the power... And motive behind taking risks for the cause of God is not heroism or lust for adventure or the need to earn God's will, but rather faith in the all-providing, all-ruling, all-satisfying Son of God, Jesus Christ. The foundation to this is the promises of God. We must, 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 we must feed our minds with the promises of God. He's always going to be with us. If you're, if you're not thriving in your walk with God, please read Romans 8. Read, you might not know where to start sometimes in the Bible. You might open up the Bible and think, oh, well, now their face is blacker than soot. Uh, they are not recognized. What, where am, I, what am I reading here? You, you can flick through the Bible and think, where do I start? Well, a great place to start would be in the New Testament. Go, to the, go and see what God has said about following Jesus and what it means for us. Romans 8 is so... I tell you, that is a chapter that if you can memorize any area of Scripture, memorize that. It will feed your soul. It will help you to be strong in God and take risks for Him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not any trouble or hardship, nor persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Not any power, not death, not demons, nothing in the past, present or future, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Don't miss the implications in these verses. It's not to say that God's people will never face those things. The implication is that they will. The implication is that they will face those things, but none of them cause us to be separated from God. And that's the foundation of risk. That's the foundation of stepping out and saying, okay, if I lose all else, I will have God and I'm still a winner. If I lose all else, if I lose my money, if I lose my reputation, if I lose my health even, I've still got God. And so I'm a winner because I've got God. We never need to doubt God's provision for us. Verse 31 of Romans 8, again read out early, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So, When we step out to take risks for God, and maybe some of you here, you've got a clear calling to do some things, and you're thinking, that is a big risk. I don't even know how that's going to end up. You can say, how how can I be sure that God will provide for me all that I need? You look to see Jesus on the cross. You see Jesus on the cross. If God didn't spare him, how will he not graciously with him give you all things? All things that you need. As you seek first his kingdom, as you seek first his righteousness, all else will be given to you. Some of you have got callings upon you. You know, you may be a bit reluctant to even admit to it because you know that it's going to take, it's going to take some, some giving up some stuff. It's going to take some risk. It's going to take some trusting in God. Well, if he didn't spare his only son for you, then why do you need to doubt that he will not give you, why do you need to doubt that he will give you anything else? He will give you all that you need. He will, need, he, he will give you all that you need. You look to Jesus on the cross, say, "Okay, I, He's not spared Jesus from me. He will give me everything else as I step out for Him." That's the foundation of risk. That's the foundation of stepping out for the glory of God, because the greater Jonathan, Jesus Christ, He went. He was the Son of the King, wasn't He, Jonathan? Jesus, the Son of God, went into the enemy camp, and He gave the enemy an almighty beating. He gave him a beating that he would never recover from. He gave him a beating that caused panic amongst all the forces of evil. The greater Jonathan has won the victory for us. The greater Jonathan is our captain. Jesus Christ is our captain. It's him that we follow behind. We're his armor bearers now. We're his armor bearers who get to be involved in what Jesus is doing in the world. We get to follow after him. We can say, Jesus, I'm with you, heart and soul. And my fourth point, really, today and final, is that advance is accelerated when we are together, heart and soul. When we are together, heart and soul, behind Jesus. When we say, To Jesus, firstly, I'm following after you. I'm giving you my life. I'm living for you. I'm with you, heart and soul, Jesus. Wherever you lead me, I will go. But ultimately, as a church, as a community, we will be most effective and advance will be accelerated when we are together, heart and soul. Where there's not disunity, where there's not discord, where we're tightly knit together, where we're fighting back to back, where we're pointing out maybe, where there's armor lacking on people. Hey, look, you've got your weak there, you're vulnerable there. Let me help you. Let me point that out to you. Let's work that through together. Where we're tightly knitted together is where we'll see the most advance where we're not lone wolves, where we're not um, trying to go about this on our own, where we're not trying to sort of uh, go about this without any uh, community around us, will be most effective, and will be advance will be accelerated as we are tightly knit, where we are heart and soul in this together. I tell you, as one of the leaders here, it is, it's a real privilege when I hear people say, I'm in on this, I'm behind you, as elders, it's such a privilege to us when people say, I'm, I'm in on this. I, I really want to give myself to this church. And in the next couple of weeks are going to be welcoming people into membership. I think some 14 or 15 people into membership here. And it's so good to see people saying, I am in on this. I'm in on this. And, and you might be here this morning and not a member of Hope Church. Let me encourage you. If this is not the church for you, it may well be. Find a church. Commit to it. Be in it. Say, I am I'm with you, leaders, heart and soul. I'm with you, community, heart and soul. That's the place where you're most effective for Jesus. It's when you're when you're in on a community. where you say, "I am with you, heart and soul." There's great churches in Ipswich. There's some great. If, if this is not the place uh, for you, then let us help you find another place. But if you're here, please can I encourage you to put your flag down and say, "I'm gonna." You know, one of the things that Sarah and I did when we were in Southampton, we knew that we weren't going to be there forever but we decided we were going to commit to that church as if we would be there until our dying day. If you always think, I might move on one day, so I'm I'm just going to dip my toe in, then you'll not be effective. You'll not be effective. But actually, if you say, I'm going to give myself to this, I'm going to give myself to building this church, I'm going to give myself to reaching out to others as if I'm going to be here for the rest of my life, then you'll be effective. And you'll be in heart and soul. Let me encourage you to do that. God's got great things for us. Is that right? So we stand together? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that this morning we stand firm in the promises of your word. We know that you have the victory, Lord Jesus. You have defeated Satan. You've defeated death. You've defeated sin. And we stand in the good of your victory this morning. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are coming back and you will ultimately destroy all of those things. There will be a day where there is no more sickness. There will be a day when there is no more sadness. There'll be a day when there's no more depression. There'll be a day when there's no more fear. There will be a day when there's no more slavery. There'll be a day, Lord, when we'll no longer be frustrated by the things that we can get ensnared by. Lord God, you are going to come back and utterly destroy all of those things. And Lord Jesus, we this morning, uh, just as the armor bearer said to Jonathan, Lord, we say, Lord Jesus, we are with you heart and soul. Lord, as you advance your kingdom right across the world, we are with you heart and soul. Lord, we are seeking to see your glory in Ipswich and in Suffolk and in Essex and in this nation and in any nations that you open up to us. Lord, so we're seeking to see your name glorified. We're seeking to see the name of Jesus lifted high. And Father, I pray that we this morning, as we, uh, as we consider what it is to take risks for you, Lord, I pray you'd even lay things on our hearts now. Lay things on our hearts, things that you, you're calling us to do, Lord God. I pray that we would be uh, filling our minds with your promises, filling our minds with the truth of who you are and of who we are. Lord, we're your favored people. Lord God, your favor rests upon us. The future is bright because you're with us, Father. And I thank you, Lord, that you've got great adventures for us as individuals and as a church. I pray, Lord God, that you would cause us to be bold for you, cause us to do mighty exploits for you, for your glory. I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know you, Lord. As Nick said earlier, I pray that you would come and make yourself known to people, uh, Lord God, right across this room. Make yourself known to people now. Lord God, thank you that you love us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you you went into the enemy camp. You defeated the enemy on our behalf. We couldn't do it. Lord, we were like Saul, frozen in the cave. Lord, in fear and trembling, Lord Jesus, you took action. You raided the enemy camp. You died on the cross for us and you rose again. I thank you, Lord Jesus. We stand in the good of that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Hipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.